Welcome to a History of Submarines podcast. Episode 2.4, John and Simon. In the year 1875, onlookers near a lake in the state of New Jersey were surprised to see in the water a tiny cigar-shaped contraption with what looked like a lump of glass on top float and then disappear in the water and then surface again, then submerge, and then surface again. It was approximately 16 feet or 4.5 meters long and had a diameter of 2 feet or a little over half a meter. In the words of submarine chronicler Herbert Fife, it looked like an underwater canoe with a lid on top. It was the Holland One, named after its designer, Irish-American John Philip Holland. The submersible was divided into three parts. In the back and front end were submersion tanks and air reservoirs, and in the middle compartment sat Holland wearing a diving suit and diving helmet. His head stuck into the lump, which was a small chart with glass plating. The sub had a propeller in the back that was operated by Holland's feet on a pedal mechanism. The Holland one would submerge by allowing the central compartment to be filled with water, with Holland safe in his diving suit. The Holland one had positive buoyancy, meaning that its default position was on the surface. Making speed, allowing water in, and then pushing the submarine down into the water by means of its horizontal rudder would make the submarine dive quickly. This was the essence of the Holland-type submarine pushing the submarine below water at speed at an uneven keel as opposed to purely submerging up and down vertically on an even keel as had been practiced until then. Holland also interested himself in the physics of flight and approached underwater movement in the same way. It was where the diving parlance found its origin. The Holland submarine literally glided into the water. The Holland one was John P. Holland's first attempt at building a working submarine. He built it mostly for testing purposes after working on the designs for close to 20 years. John Philip Holland was born in the village of Liskener on the west coast of English-occupied Ireland on February 28, 1841. While growing up as a child, the Holland family lived through the terrible times that culminated in the Great Famine of 1848. Farmers who fell on bad times were evicted from their homes by landlords. All of this is sure to have made a great impression on the young Holland, who developed a strong dislike for the English who lorded over Ireland. The family moved to the town of Limerick in 1853, so when Holland was 12, and went to a school operated by the Christian Brothers. His father died, and with his income gone, the family had to make ends meet. John left school to work in a tobacco shop. In 1858, he went back to the school of the Irish Christian Brothers to become a teacher. Because of bad health, John next moved to Cork to grow his strength and teach. There he met Christian brother Dominic Burke, a science teacher who had got John interested in science, mainly physics and engineering. At about this time, the American Civil War had started and Irish newspapers were full of news reports. It was around this time, too, that Holland, convinced that Ireland had to be set free of English occupation, started thinking of ways of defeating the mighty British Royal Navy. If there was only some way to clear a path, he believed, the Irish could be helped by bringing in Irish-American volunteers from overseas to lead a rebellion. At first, he thought that the Irish, somehow getting their hands on the new heavily armored ironclads that he was reading about in the newspapers, could get the job done. He read about the Confederate Merrimack and the Federal Monitor, 
armored ships that could easily send wooden warships to the bottom. Perhaps a few of these heavy ships, or perhaps some vessels like the Confederate Davids, could clear that path Holland dreamed of. The successes of the Merrimacks and Monitors in the American Civil War also hadn't gone unnoticed in London. Soon, the British Navy was ordering their own ironclads. Then the CSS Hundley sank the USS Housatonic, which made a great impression on John. Soon after that, you read about another submarine that was experimented with in New York, believed to be the Intelligent Whale, as we discussed in a former episode, and he started looking into the history of submarines by David Bushnell and Robert Fulton and sketching his own designs for submarines. If the English were building armored ships, then perhaps an unseen enemy beneath the waves could take those down. He started building his first submarine models to experiment with. After the American Civil War, the Fenian Brotherhood, the American counterpart to the Irish Republican Brotherhood in Ireland, tried to move weapons and veterans of the Civil War to Ireland to start a rebellion. This culminated in several botched attempts. Some Irish Americans did make it to Cork, but they were quickly defeated and rounded up. There is no doubt that all of this rebellious activism made an impression on Holland as it did on all Irish. We move forward a bit. In 1872, Holland's mother and sister emigrated to the United States and John followed them, arriving in Boston in 1873, a city brimming with Irish nationalist activity. He had brought his submarine's designs with him, but hadn't thought of them much as his most important challenge was to find employment. It was when he broke his leg that he returned to a submarine's design on his sickbed. Combining the historical information on previous submarines with his own ideas, he came up with designs that would cure existing ailments and improve submarine design. By this time, he had made contact with Irish activists in Boston and convinced them of his ideas to build submarines. With a loan of $4,000, a big sum in those days, he contacted a workshop. With the aid and advice of engineers there, he constructed the Holland One. Rumors about it, possibly embellished, that Holland's acquaintance with Irish nationalists had drawn spies from the British intelligence service to observe Holland's experiments. At around the same time, Holland had approached the U.S. government with proposals to build submarines, but they fell on deaf ears. As mentioned in the previous episode of this podcast, spending money on the military was low on the government's priority list. Aside from that, and possibly with the disaster of the intelligent whales still fresh in everybody's minds, admirals did not believe in the efficacy of submarines. And so, Holland stuck with funding from the Fenian Brotherhood to finance the Holland II, which was constructed in 1877. This, too, was mainly an experimental craft, but the first one to be fitted with a gasoline engine for propulsion. It had a metal hull that was 10 feet, or almost 3 meters long, with a beam of 5 feet, or 1.5 meters. It had a double hull, where the submersion tanks were placed, and both the vertical and horizontal rudder at the stern. Holland had established that having the horizontal rudder at the propeller would make diving quicker when at speed, but the design was a failure. Owing to numerous leaks when submerged and after removing the engine, Holland had it sunk beneath the bridge. Next up was the Holland III, with the hull laid down in 1879 in New York City and completed in 1881. This submarine too was financed by the Fenian Brotherhood. They were looking for a way to break through Royal Navy blockades to reach Ireland. A newspaper reporter got wind of the submarine and wrote a story about her, calling her the Fenian Ram, thanks to Holland's connections to the Fenian Brotherhood. Holland objected to the name, but it stuck ever since. The Holland III was 31 feet or 9.5 meters long, with a beam of 6 feet or almost 2 meters, and a displacement of 16 tons. She was spherical, had a double hull holding the submersion tanks in between them, and a long conning tower on top. She held a crew of three, 
could dive to more than 50 feet or 80 meters and had a cannon mounted on her front bow that could fire dynamite shells using air pressure. The idea was that the submarine would approach an enemy ship below water, then surface, surprising the ship's crew, and fire the cannon. The Brayton piston gasoline engine delivered 15 horsepower using part recycled exhaust and oxygen, making her top speed 9 knots on the surface. Holland used the Holland 3 for more experiments and ideas on improvement lessons, which he used to perfect later submarines. While on the other end of the Atlantic Ocean, the Nordenfeldt submarines and the first French submarines still had trouble with balance and trim, turning most boats into perpetual seesaws, as Farnham Bishop put it, Holland had solved these problems using his ideas on speed, positive buoyancy and rudders. But while he was making his improvements well into 1883, his relationship with the Fenian Brotherhood soured. At one point, things came to a head, and the Brotherhood hijacked the submarine, towing it to New Haven, Connecticut. There, the Brotherhood tried their best to operate the submarine, but in Holland's own words, they couldn't make it work. The harbor master decided that the antics by these Irish Americans and the large metal hulk were a danger to shipping, and he had it seized and brought to shore. The Holland III is now still in the museum in Paterson, New Jersey. John Holland was now down and out. With no more money coming from the Fenian Brotherhood, he got a job at a pneumatic gun company as a draftsman, drawing designs for their guns. He got the company's owners interested in his submarine ideas, and they agreed to finance Holland's new Nautilus submarine boat company. As the gun company had many contacts in the U.S. military, Holland was able to get the Navy's attention for his works. He constructed the Holland IV, a small affair and actually just another experimental model. It sank due to an incident with an open hatch. Next up was the Holland V, armed with two dynamite guns. It basically had the same specs as the Holland III, but it was mishandled by hired hands and so severely damaged that it had to be scrapped. The Holland VI then also did not make the mark when it was put to water and discarded. Holland was just about to give up on the whole affair when he thought he got his big break. In 1888, the Secretary of the Navy asked for proposals for submarines. Through the Krabs Company, two proposals were submitted, one for a Holland submarine and one for a Nordenfeldt by Swedish entrepreneur Thorsten Nordenfeldt, of which we talked in a previous episode. John Holland's design won, but the project never came to fruition thanks to a change in government. The new administration struck the program. Holland went back to working for companies until, in 1893, stories about the French success in submarine design reached American shores. If you haven't listened to episode 2.3 on French submarine design success, now is the time to do it. Go ahead, you'll be surprised about how the French helped pioneer submarine design and made it the envy of the world for a time. The US Congress got interested and called for proposals for a submarine. Holland seized on it and sent in his proposal. When filing his proposal in person in Washington, D.C., he bumped into another intrepid and smart submarine inventor, Simon Lick. I suppose this moment would have been not unsimilar to Bill Gates and Steve Jobs meeting for the first time. Holland and Lake, two of the most foremost submarine inventors on the west side of the Atlantic in the same room, although they didn't know it yet, while filing proposals for their own competing designs, perhaps feeling a bit awkward. Thanks to his autobiography, we know Lake did feel awkward and out of place. He lost the competition to Holland. Simon Lake was born on September 4, 1866 in Pleasantville, New Jersey, and yes, it appears the state of New Jersey plays a pivotal role in submarine history. As a boy, Simon Lake took an interest in submerged travel. 
In his autobiography, which deals mainly with his work on the submarines, he describes how one day he figured out that if he was out on the water in his canvas canoe on the nearby river, he could flip the canoe and breathe the air that was caught inside the canoe. His feet could walk in the riverbed, and this is apparently where he got the idea for his special type of submarines. He didn't know it then, but his ideas would spread all over Europe and integrate into German, Austro-Hungarian, and Russian submarines. As a kid, Lake read Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, which we know was inspired by the French Blanger submarine. You know, the one that used compressed air for propulsion that was later turned into a water tank. Lake was enthralled by Verne's book. As a result, Lake's first ideas for a submarine were not necessarily for military use, but like Spanish inventor Narcisse Monturiol for commercial use. Lake envisioned a submarine that could submerge all the way to the bottom of a lake or the ocean, like the submarine in Jules Verne's book. The submarine would have wheels that would allow it to move on the riverbed or sea bottom. Below the bow of the submarine would be a hatch that divers could open. The pressurized air inside the submarine would prevent water from rushing in, and divers could exit the submarine and do all kinds of work, like, for instance, searching for wrecks, salvage what was in them, and sell whatever they found or work for a commission. When Lake walked into that Washington, D.C. office to file his proposal, he was just 27 years old. But sadly for Lake, Holland had a leg up on his competition. Where Lake's designs were merely on paper and he had never actually constructed a submarine, Holland had a track record of building actual working machines and ironing out many of the wrinkles in the design in the process. And of course, in 1888, his early proposal had been accepted by the Secretary of the Navy. And so Holland's proposal won the day. Preparing for his last-ditch effort, the down-and-out John P. Holland managed to get a loan for just $347.19. This was the money he needed to draw up his plans. His lender also became stockholder in the newly established Holland Torpedo Boat Company, which would be folded into the world-famous electric boat company, but more about that later. Holland's proposal was the Holland 7 submarine, named Plunger. She was 85 feet, or almost 26 meters long, had 11.5 feet, or 3.5 meter diameter, a displacement of 165 tons submerged, a crew of 7 and 2 internal torpedo tubes for whitehead torpedoes. But the demands of the U.S. Navy were not to Holland's liking. At that time, countries like France and entrepreneurs like Thorsten Nordenfeldt were building submarines with dual propulsion systems. Steam engines for on the surface, electric engines for submerged travel. As we know, Holland had been fitting his previous submarines with gasoline engines. He had early on considered steam engines as wholly inadequate for submarines, as was once more proven with the French Narval submarine built in 1898. Yet steam engines was what the Navy demanded, Holland needed the order, and so he grudgingly went along. Construction of the plunger began in 1895, but throughout the process, Holland felt uneasy. He had basically downgraded his own ideas and designs to fit the demands of the U.S. Navy, which were in his mind of an earlier, obsolete generation of submarines. While developing the plunger, Holland was able to add some of his avant-garde ideas. He developed an intricate system to divide ballast across the submarine. So if, for instance, a torpedo was launched and the bow of the plunger would lose the weight of the torpedo and thus become lighter, possibly keeling the submarine over, he devised a system that would automatically redistribute water from the ballast tanks to the bow tanks, preventing a sudden imbalance. Still, Holland knew he was building a submarine that would be obsolete when launched. So he set out to convince the U.S. Navy of this. In the end, the plunger was indeed launched in August 1897. In the meantime, Holland and the U.S. government had come to an agreement. Holland would pay back the government's investment, thus declaring the plunger a loss, in return for which the government would fund a new submarine that lived up to Holland's specifications. 
Since 1893, Holland had been working on a new design, the number 8. But when he and the government agreed on a new deal, he decided to scrap those plans, took the best ideas, started completely anew and designed the Holland 9. This was the famous Holland submarine that would change the world. The Holland submarine was nearly half as long as the plunger, 53 feet or 60 meters, mainly because it didn't carry the large steam engine. It had dual propulsion. A gasoline engine provided 7 knots per hour on the surface, a decent speed, and the large gasoline supply tanks allowed for a range of 1,500 miles, far more than the submarines that the French were developing, which only had electric propulsion. Submerged propulsion relied on an electric engine with 66 batteries, allowing for four hours of continuous underwater travel. The Holland was fitted with two tubes in the bow to fire dynamite shells and, another milestone, one tube for launching white-haired torpedoes aft. She could dive to 28 feet or 8.5 meters. As all submarines of the time would spend most of their time above service until they encountered an enemy, John Holland had added a flat superstructure on the spherical double hull to allow people to move around on top. But aside from all of Holland's clear improvements, what made the Holland submarine stand out was that she solved the balance and train problems, something that still bedeviled other submarine builders like the French. The Holland submarine was the complete submarine in almost every way. Meanwhile, Simon Lake was still struggling to get his designs for submarines sold. Like said, he lost the U.S. Navy's competition to Holland in 1893. Ever since, Lake had been trying to raise funds, get patents and sell a submarine, but he couldn't make it work. The problem was that, unlike Holland, he didn't have a working submarine to show for. He didn't have that track record. Yet many of his designs were improvements on the submarine that would later be incorporated into most major submarines in the world. In many ways, Lake designs were just as good as Holland's, and in some respects, maybe even better. Like Holland, Lake's proposal in the U.S. government's competition called for a dual propulsion, with an electric engine for submerged travel and a steam engine for the surface, as the request for proposal demanded. Like the Holland submarines, Lake's submarine had a double hull with the ballast tanks in between. But he also proposed four tubes for white-haired torpedoes, two in the bow and two at the stern. It also had two propellers for propulsion. Another typical lake feature was that he added a deck gun, or cannon, in front of the conning tower. This, he reasoned, was for defensive but also offensive purposes. A submarine operating on the surface could act like a torpedo boat against targets. As we'll see in the episodes of World War I, this idea would prove deadly and literally send hundreds of service ships to the bottom of the sea. The German U-boat ace of World War I sank most of his targets using the cannon. It's now 2021, and this man still holds the world record of ships sunk. Lake's design also called for a true periscope, something the Holland submarine still lacked. Both Holland and Lake also found ways to deal with the perpetual navigation problem while submerged. For conservative Navy leaders, this was an argument against submarines. A magnetic compass placed in the thick metal hulk creates a host of effects, but a properly working compass isn't one of them. Holland found a way to keep submarines on a straight course and thus the compass also. Lake moved the compass up to the bronze top of the conning tower of submarines. By using an array of mirrors, he could see the compass when inside the submarine. What really set the Lake submarines apart from the Hollands, apart from the wheels of course, was that Simon Lake thought Holland's method of diving the submarine, so using the diving planes to push the submarine down and up at speed, was inherently dangerous. Lake believed that this would lead to accidents, like a submarine diving too deep, too fast. So Lake's design called for four planes, two a little to the front of the center of the boat and two a little behind the center. Combined with some speed, this would make the submarine always dive in service on an even keel. 
But poor Simon Lake couldn't sell his ideas. He realized that he needed something to show for. So he decided to scrounge together all the money he could and construct the Argonaut Jr., named after the Greek myth of Jason and the Argonauts. It was a very modest affair, a small triangular submarine made of wood. From the outside, she looked like a boat's bow cut off. She had three wheels on each corner of the triangle. She had a manual propulsion, mainly meant to move the submarine about on its wheels while submerged in the riverbed. Lake wanted to show off the commercial argument, the airlock principle that allowed divers to exit and enter safely while submerged. This impressed enough people to finance construction of Lake's first real submarine, the Argonaut. It really was a much improved version of the Argonaut Jr. and not as fanciful as Lake's designs for the U.S. Navy. The Argonaut didn't have Lake's diving planes or any weapons. She did have a gasoline engine for propulsion with a long rubber hose rising to the surface to serve as the exhaust. She was used to salvage coal cargoes from sunken cargo ships, for instance, to sell the coal back to the original owner or other customers. It was after one night in 1898, during a storm at sea, when Lake was driving the Argonaut from Baltimore to New York Harbor on the surface, that he realized that the cigar-shaped structure of the submarine was in need of improvements. The submarine rolled and pitched in the rough seas, and at one point so much water rushed in through the open conning tower that Lake thought he'd sink. It was one thing to operate a submarine in a calm lake or river, but quite another to drive one at sea. So, once in New York, Lake made a radical change that would change submarine design the world over. Lake understood that the submarines of the day would spend most of their time on the surface. As we now know, they would, until well at the end of World War II. If this was so, Lake reasoned, submarines needed to be equipped to withstand rough seas. So, he decided to cut off the entire upper half of the external hull, extend it, and basically weld the upper half of a schooner on top of the submarine, thus creating a ship-like superstructure. He added holes to the side of the superstructure so it could fill itself with water, preventing collapse due to water pressure when submerged. Eurogonat's top now looked like a schooner, with a high-chin spoon bow to boot. Lake had discovered seagoing blue-water submarines. Lake painted it, his superstructure submarines in the U.S. almost a year before French engineer Leboeuf constructed the Narval, which we talked about in the previous episode. The Narval, too, had something resembling a superstructure. Meanwhile, on April 11, 1900, the U.S. Navy officially bought the Holland from the Holland Torpedo Boat Company. April 11 is now officially an American National Day of Celebration, appropriately called Submarine Day, as the start of the U.S. Submarine Service. She was officially commissioned as the USS Holland on October 13, 1900. The U.S. government ordered six more Holland submarines, four to serve on the eastern seaboard and two in the Pacific. History was made. Two years later, six more submarines would be ordered. Back in Europe, the Royal Navy was keenly aware of what was happening in France and now the United States. The admirals were keeping a close eye on developments. They knew very well what submarines could do, but there were still discussions going on. Should they acknowledge the submarine as a threat? The mighty Royal Navy deciding to build their own submarines could be a signal to nations everywhere that London feared the new vessels, enticing possible enemies to also build them, which was precisely what the Admiralty wanted to prevent. Embassy staff were ordered to report back anything on this new threat to the Royal Navy's hegemony. As could be expected of a dominant force, it wasn't interested in the new threat itself as much as how to find ways to defend ships against it. Navy professionals were requested to concoct countermeasures. The British were so worried that when the Americans bought the first Holland on April 11, the British entered into negotiations with the Holland Torpedo Boat Company a month later. Not to start their own submarine service, mind you, but to experiment with it and develop countermeasures. 
Yet this quickly evolved into a deal to have five Holland submarines built under license at the Vickers Wharf. Word get out, and as the British Admiralty feared, soon other nations started to get interested in the Hollands. The Imperial Japanese Navy, for instance, entered into negotiations for five. Other countries showed interest. The Holland Torpedo Boat Company started to do very well and was incorporated into the Electric Boat Company. Simon Lake looked on, a little miserably. During the Spanish-American War of 1898, he had again tried to raise government interest, promoting the idea that his seabed-riding submarines could secretly move into enemy harbors below the netting that navies were now employing to guard against floating mines and submarines and blow up ships using divers with mines. But the U.S. Navy turned his ideas down. So Lake moved to Europe to see if he could do business there. He engaged with the famous German steel company Krupp, which also owned the well-known Germania Werft Wharf. At that time, Krupp had been asked by the Russian government to provide them with submarines, and Krupp reached out to Simon Lake to provide them with designs and advice. Lake shelled between Germany and Russian city of St. Petersburg. All this time, whenever Krupp asked for designs and blueprints, Lake sent them under the impression that they'd be used to build submarines for Russia. Back in the United States, he had been building the Protector, a much improved version of the Argonaut. When the Russo-Japanese War broke out in 1905, both Russian and Japanese agents dropped by to see whether they could buy the submarine, but he sold it to the Russians. The difficulty was that Russia was now at war. The U.S. neutrality laws prohibited him from exporting a weapon of war. So Lake secretly had the Protector moved to Russia by hiding her on a ship. Protector was then moved by land all the way to the east, but came too late to make any difference. Russia had lost the war. Soon after that followed the almost revolution of 1905 in Russia. In Lake's own words, Krupp told him that because of this, the submarine contract with Russia was dead, his services were no longer needed, and oh yeah, those designs and blueprints Lake had sent to them? Well, his patents were not protected under German law, and so they kept his designs, thank you very much, and hang up the phone. Lake had been had. Germany now had plans and designs to build on, and this they would. In 1906, the first German U-boat, the U-1, in almost every respect a lake submarine was launched at Germaniawerft. Back in the United States, John Holland had withdrawn from the electric boat company, ostensibly after falling out with the company's leadership, and he left. Believing that he had better ideas to build the next generation of submarines, but needing the base patents, he tried to convince electric boats of selling him back some of those, but they refused. He petitioned Congress to regain his patents, but was turned down. Lake remained mostly in Europe until 1907, advising the Austro-Hungarian government on submarines and helping the Russian government build new classes of submarines based on his protector design, called the Ossetar class, and a second class called the Kaiman class. He moved back to the United States and established a new submarine company, but with electric boat company dominant in the field at the time, he wasn't very successful until American involvement in World War I, when he was asked to build new submarines for the U.S. Navy. In later years, the Lake Torpedo Boat Company would advise on submarine developments and special refits. Simon Lake died on June 23, 1945, having lived through two world wars and having witnessed all that the submarine could do. I've mentioned his autobiography as submarine designer a couple of times. It's called The Submarine in War and Peace, written in 1918, and it's really an excellent read. You can download it from Project Gutenberg. I really advise you to read it. John Philip Holland died much earlier, on August 12, 1914, at the age of 71, just when World War I was erupting. Thanks to his efforts and his meticulous and unrelenting approach to build the perfect submarine, the Holland submarines and their offspring were soon to be found everywhere. 
But alas, the submarine never freed Ireland in his lifetime, as he had so much hoped. Nations that had bought his submarines had started building on Holland's designs, improving on them and making them more deadly. In 1914, thanks to John Holland and Simon Lake, fleets of submarines were to be found all over the globe. In Great Britain, France, Italy, Germany, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Russia, Japan, other countries like Norway, Sweden, Brazil, Portugal, and Netherlands either had one or more submarines or were constructing them. Just a month after Holland's death, one German U-boat showed the world what kind of carnage submarines can cause by single-handedly sinking three British battleships in the space of an hour. The submarines had turned tables. The Royal Navy would never be the mistress of the sea again. Thank you for listening to this episode, mostly dedicated to John P. Holland and Simon Lake. I really hope you enjoyed it. And if you have, please, please don't forget to rate it wherever you listen to your podcasts and subscribe and tell your friends about it. And it's what keeps this podcast afloat. In two weeks, the episode about the Whitehead Torpedo will drop, after which we'll sail straight into the four episodes of World War 